innovative, often duplicated. When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it. Make it way harder for them to follow what I take. It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea. Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up. So just take your stuff, rake it up, and take the bus. Never fake the funk, you painted skunks. You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the weight is up. Fight. WHUPLP, Hillsborough, North Carolina, the center of the known world. This is the Cage Side Concussion Cast, and we are coming to you live with my guest, Sean Zorio, Pendergrass Academy Black Belt. We'll get to Sean's jiu-jitsu journey in a moment, but first, we got to give you some details and particulars about how to get in touch with us. You can always email the show at cagesidewhoop at gmail.com or on Twitter at Instagram at cagesidewhup. You can also hit us up on Facebook. Our Facebook page is Cageside Radio. I'm really excited about the show because I've been wanting to talk to Sean for a long time. Sean is one of the more active and prominent guys in the scene. He's one of the most well-rounded jiu-jitsu folks I know, a great teacher, and a great ambassador for jiu-jitsu. does a lot of work with U.S. Grappling, who has a submission-only tournament in Raleigh coming up that I'm sure we'll talk a bunch about. And I think that you will get, I think that, I know I'll get a lot out of it, and I hope you, the listener, get a lot out of us as well. Um, Trevor Hayes is off this week. So, um, without further ado, let's get right into the news. And Sean, if you would want to join me for the news segment. Sure. That sounds great. Absolutely, because we're going to talk about one thing that's going to happen, and then we're going to talk about two things that just happened. So let's start with the thing that's going to happen next weekend, which I alluded to, and that's U.S. Grappling submission-only Raleigh. Sure. Um, So for those of you that may or may not know, um, I've been very involved in U.S. Grappling for a number of years, um, and we recently have started kind of moving our events to bigger venues, um, and our early event this year, I think it was in February maybe, was at Dorton Arena. Um, Dorton Arena does not have air conditioning, and it is the summer in North Carolina. It's 100 degrees and 100% humidity, and no AC for a grappling tournament was a no-go. So um, this following weekend, I think it's the 16th. The 16th, indeed. We'll be uh, in the Kerr-Scott building, I believe, um, running a a real, honest-to-goodness, sub-only tournament. There are no time limits. There are no points. There are no excuses. That's the tagline. Register online ahead of time, save yourself a little bit of money, get a t-shirt, and come out and test yourself. See if you can go for an hour or two hours or however long it takes to really see who comes out on top. And that's, I mean, and Sean makes a good point that we'll get back into during the meat of the show as well, which is a lot of a lot of organizations advertise submission only. And often that will mean something like, all right, you and the other guy go for 10 minutes, and if nobody wins, we're going to do something. You know, you, you and the other guy are going to go for 20 minutes. But this is a true... Two folks step out on the mat. One of those folks eventually taps. True story. Yeah, and it's 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 always an exciting event. And like you know, we talk about U.S. grappling a lot. I, I've competed a fair bit, and I've competed, I think, for every major tournament organization. And it is no exaggeration to say that U.S. grappling runs the best, most professional tournaments that I've been that I've personally competed at that I've associated with. It it is really a tournament that's run by grapplers for grapplers, and so I think that that shows in the competition experience. Uh, I would say so, and I also want to just say that I think that you competing with U.S. Grappling is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> um, we actually had to make a rule that did not allow people to do men's divisions and 30-plus divisions because Jeff would come and do all eight divisions and destroy our schedule. 
Sorry about that. No, don't be sorry. It was pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes you got to do insane things and, and to, to make your friends' lives a little harder. Uh, but I appreciate you guys letting me compete. And I, I had, and you know, honestly, and we'll, we'll get into this in the meat of the show. We'll talk a little bit about our perspective, competitive journeys, and our respective uh, roles with U.S. grappling in a bit. But, like, for now, we'll cap off this part of the news segment by just saying, all right, that's July 16th. You can register online at usgrappling.com. usgrappling.com. Registration's yeah. open. Yeah, so get out there, test yourself in a true submission-only format, one of the most uh, exciting and well-run tournaments out there. And so speaking of exciting jiu-jitsu experiences, I know you didn't get a chance to watch this. We talked about this in the pre-show. But jiu-jitsu theater, the first uh, iteration of this this tournament run by The Good Fight, and it's you know half tournament, half pay-per-view event, was yesterday. And uh, while I was unable to attend because uh, it was my girlfriend's 40th birthday, happy birthday, Betsy, the, um, I, I saw some of the matches online, and it really looked like it went well. Um, it looked like, you know, your friend and mine, C.J. Murdoch, uh, won by armbar in what people are calling the match of the day. Um, Gavin Corbet beat up a couple of grown men in the 145-pound division, which, you know, get used to that, folks. As he does. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I also, like, you know, and a bunch of really prominent local competitors uh, had matches. I know that uh, Dave Porter competed, or, uh, Cody Malte competed. Marcel Fucci. Mar Tom, I think Tom Sibley had a match on it as well. He did. Chad I Tyler. I saw uh, I saw Marcel's match, and actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I really wanted to talk about this match. It was a super cool match, and if you get the chance to check it out online, it's only like two and a half minutes. And so, what was funny is uh, most people that know Marcel know that he he loves Tenth Planet style. He's a big leg lock guy, and so Marcel and I was I was super proud of him for this match because he uh, he he sort of executed a game plan. Was coached by Sean Applegate, who's in town for a seminar today. And so he immediately pulls guard and goes right into his leg lock game. Goes right into that electric chair, sort of like gets his lock down, and is really working effectively for some leg locks. And his opponent defends those leg locks really well. And of course, that's plan A for Marcel is going after those feet. So then he uses the electric chair to sweep, um, but it sort of goes bad, ends up in a scramble, and the guy ends up passing Marcel's guard. So the guy's on top, and Marcel is under side control, and Marcel gets him with a sneaky wrist lock that that he, he that I believe he first learned from the Fredson Paishao seminar, another concussion cast guest, and uh, and he's apparently been catching everybody with that lately, and I was super stoked to see Marcel like a you know it's it's always fun to watch Marcel compete, but it's also super cool because when a guy's plan A doesn't work out, it's like ah oh, crap I thought I was gonna get because I really thought he was gonna gonna get the leg lock. I thought that, and I saw a little bit of that match just a quick clip that electric chair i think was close mm -hmm. uh the other guy's hand was hovering I, I think if he had kept with that he may have finished the electric chair yeah i think so too and i know what you're talking about the dude looked like he was going to tap once or twice and and uh and so so like i know from myself like if i'm really close on a move and it doesn't work out and sometimes that you can be frustrated and marcel didn't let it get to him he just went to his plan b and 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 got the submission so excellent job to, to marcel um, and this was an interesting event too. Like I, I, I'm sad that I couldn't be there in person because so they had uh, they had a tournament format with three man brackets, and then they took a break to show a kung fu movie, and uh, then they had a pay per view event that had some of the matches that, that we that we've mentioned. And so I think I mean I, I'm always for people doing sort of experimental formats with events like this. And so I'll, I'll have to hopefully we'll be able. We had uh, Jimmy Fortunato from the Good Fight and Vernon Kirk on. To, to preview that event, and I'd like to talk to those guys and sort of see how what they think about how the event went and uh, whether it, whether they're going to do another one like it. I think one of the other big things that that, that event brought Jeff was uh, it was at a theater. It was in an actual theater where people were in theater seating, 
those matches happened up on a stage, which is a really unique and very neat process, I think. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely, and I'm I'm all for like experimenting, and and this is where I think the we can transition to to the the, the final bit of the news segment because we're talking about jujitsu format, we're talking about pay per views. So the weekend after U.S. Grappling Sub Only Raleigh, which is July 16th, uh, Pro Jitsu Five is going to be July 23rd. And we've had a couple of pro jiu-jitsu athletes on that card um, on the show. We had Amber Sankey. We had uh, Becky Lee Austin. We've interviewed Kim Rice before, who is going to be Amber's opponent. Um, we're going to try and get uh, Jeff Munson on before, who, who is in the main event against Dan Miller. And uh, and that and, uh, and and so hopefully that'll happen. But one thing that I wanted to mention, and then we'll and then we'll get into our main featured interview with Sean Zorio, is that um, and, and you know I would like to get your take on this as well, Sean, is that. It seems like Pro Jitsu is growing rapidly, and I posted a graphic to the Facebook about how their most recent promo, it's up over 11,500 views now, and when you compare that to something like the latest Metamorris, whose promo is, is still under 2,000 views, and I mean, I think it's kind of cool to see that local promotion going in the right direction, and, and, and you know, I'm wondering, and, and so, so I guess... You know, have you have you been to any of the Pro Jitsu cards? Um, I haven't made it. I'm gonna try and make it down to this one. Uh, probably ride down there with John. Uh, and when I say John, I mean Bagels Telford. Uh, I'm probably the other, the only person other than his parents who actually calls him John and not Bagels. Uh, but I'm gonna try and make it down to this one with him. I hear it's a really neat event. Um, I know he's excited to go compete for them again. Uh, I'm really glad to see the local, a local company doing well. Um, it seems like. Not to get into it too much, but maybe Metamorris is not the most efficiently run process. Um, I'm glad to see local guys doing it, doing it well, and giving local competitors a chance to compete on a big stage. Most definitely, and and like during and, and we're gonna we're gonna take a break and get into the uh, a fifteen second break and then get right into the main interview with Sean. So uh, for the if you haven't you know so if you compete regularly or if you're just in the local jujitsu scene you've probably met Sean or seen him around either uh, him teaching at Pendergrass Academy uh, him training and competing uh, his role at U.S. Grappling. I mean, you, it, but if you if you do know Sean, which most of you probably do, I think you'll learn something about him from this featured interview. And if you don't know Sean, you should get familiar. And so on the other side of this bumper. Uh, we're going to have a 40-minute featured interview with Pendergrass Academy Black Belt, Sean Zorio. So stick around. Jiu-Jitsu is part of the solution. Jiu-Jitsu saves lives. It's the Cape Side Concussion Cast on WHUPFN.org. So we've talked a bunch already about uh, some of the local jiu-jitsu happenings, but I want to learn a little bit more about you and your personal journey into jiu-jitsu. So maybe we could start by by uh, talking about your first time training and what, what inspired you to start training jiu-jitsu. Sure. Um, so I wrestled a little bit in high school. I was not a great wrestler. Um, I wasn't super consistent. And I, I just did not have that killer drive that it takes to be a good wrestler where uh, a number of my teammates and I have talked about this before where like the guys that are good the guys that have it like the guys that end up being good MMA fighters good wrestlers really top level jiu-jitsu guys when your coach says get up it doesn't matter if you have like a plan to get up you just scramble and get up that's just how it works uh, I never had that I've never been really ultra competitive in that process so I was done with high school. I graduated. I was a very small guy. I got into weightlifting, and like that was like get over the small guy syndrome. I'll pick up all the weights and be strong. Um, I wasn't ever super strong, 
But my dad and my brother um, got into jujitsu, both of them. And I, I don't know if they actually started with the Pendergrass brothers or not, but my dad was doing it and he was like, I, I think you would really like this. You should try it. And I just blew him off and blew him off and blew him off. And I was like, that's stupid. I don't want to do that. That's stupid. So it was Father's Day 2006, and he finally was like, hey, man, all I want for Father's Day, just come to one class with me. I think you'll enjoy it. This is similar to some stuff you've done. You'll like it. I went to one class, and I was hooked. It was awesome. I was doing all of the first-time wrestlery beginner stuff. I was Americanaing people from inside. We learned the Americana the first night. I was inside people's guard trying to Americana their arms off, and I was hooked that point forward I was hooked and so you're you're right about your 10-year anniversary of training jiu-jitsu yes sir wow and so what do you think the biggest change that you have seen in the both in the local jiu-jitsu scene and in your own personal experience with jiu-jitsu has been over those 10 years um so when I started Guy and Rob who are my instructors Guy and Rob Pendergrass at the Pendergrass Academy um, we were training out of this terrible rented mat space um, a guy in Wake Forest had a wrestling club and it was in an industrial part. There was no heat. There was no AC. And that was what training was. You trained out of a terrible terrible place with no heat, no AC. Maybe you, if you were lucky, you had some space in a gym, some rented mat space. Um, so part of it is how nice the facilities are, um, kind of how cushy that's gotten, which is great. And then the other part is, like I said, when I started, Guy and Rob were purple belts. Um so when I started, um, I started, um, there's another local guy, Alan Bevier. He started like three weeks before or after I did. I can't remember. Bevier's a stud. He's really tough. Um, and a handful of the other guys at, at Pendergrass who've been around since then, you know, we started and we were all white belts. Guy and Rob were purple belts. They were doing the best that they could, but really they didn't have anybody to train with to make them better. And we were a bunch of white belts just trying to kill each other. So we would come in and whoever wanted it more that night could like you could come out on top if you want to you know consider your training a competition which we all did because we all wanted to win mm -hmm. so the thing that i've talked about with a number of my friends now is if you come in any given night and i'll just use my gym as an example my gym being pentagrass you're going to have a black belt instructor there for the adult classes um i i recently got a black belt there's a number of other guys there that are black and brown purple belts. You show up and it's a pretty stacked class. Um, if you show up and you're a white belt and you decide to do the advanced class, there might be six, eight, ten upper belt guys there that like they're gonna roll you. You're not gonna come out that evening as the winner. And I think that it requires a very different outlook on training now. That makes perfect sense, and I'm glad you brought up your your recent promotion to black belt, which is super exciting. And congratulations! And uh, thank you. Yeah, and and I'm wondering, I'm I'm just going to leave this an open ended question. What does earning a black belt mean to you? So for me, um, like I mentioned, I'm not a competitor. I've done a handful of, uh, like I was on the first Toro Cup against a good buddy of mine, Jason Wingate Bumpkin, um, who we'll have to get on the show sometime soon. That'd be cool. Jason's a good dude. Um, and I, I compete intermittently. Uh, again, to plug U.S. Grappling, I'm going to compete this following weekend, try and test out that black belt and see how it goes in the black belt sub-only division. 
Um, but for me, like, I don't have any aspirations to be world champ. I'm a 31 year old guy with a desk job. It's just not a thing for me. I don't, I don't want to say that I don't live jujitsu because I feel like in a lot of ways I do as a, a air quote hobbyist. But for me, getting a black belt was icing on the cake. When I started, there were no black belts that I had any interaction with. My instructors were purple belts recently, and they shortly after got promoted to brown belts. So, like, when I started, brown belt was as high as I ever expected to get, ever. So, I want to say it was somewhere in the middle of purple belt. Like, I kind of realized at that point, if I never got promoted again, I would still do jujitsu. It didn't really matter at that point. It was the love of the game, the love of learning, the love of sharing what I was learning. And it wasn't necessarily like, cool, chase that brown belt, chase that black belt. Um, now it feels good to get promoted. Everybody likes that recognition. But for me, the black belt was kind of the nod from my instructors that I was ready for it. Um, I teach a lot. Um, I travel. I try to be a good ambassador to the sport. Um, you know, I, I, I like sharing what I've learned, what works for me. And, um, I, I think that was the biggest thing is the black belt for me was kind of the, the nod from Guy and Rob that I was doing what they felt was necessary to, I don't want to say be a master at it. Cause obviously I'm not a master. I think it's kind of that. Everybody that gets a black belt says, okay, I'm starting over. And I really feel that way, you know, as a white belt or a blue belt or a purple belt, you know, all, you know so much that you don't know. I'm stuck in a position. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do in this specific position. I'm like, I'm still that way. There's still a lot of stuff that maybe I don't know how to deal with a very specific position, but I understand enough of the basics to kind of take inventory of where I am, where my limbs are, what's going on and start reverse engineering that position. So that for me, I think black belt is I've kind of got a basic understanding of how to reverse engineer a situation and make it work. I want to talk to you a little bit about your role as a teacher, uh, but I, but before that, I want to talk to you about your teachers. And what's it, what, so I'm a firm believer that everybody should find a gym that fits and suits them. And so I'm wondering for you what, what it is about Pendergrass, about Guy and Rob specifically, and about the Academy generally that makes it a good fit for you. And, uh, and maybe we can just start there. Sure. Um, Guy and Rob are family for me. Uh, I've known those guys for 10 years now. Uh, if anything those guys need, I'll do it. And that's really what the gym is as well. The gym is full of guys that I consider family. Jay Ivanovich, Boo Holbrook, Jeff uh, Crum, Josh Gogan, all those dudes, Chad Tyler. The brown, the brown belt, the black belt guys, the guys that I have trained with for 10 years now. I just want to say that's a wonderful list of guys and Chad Tyler. Oh, oh man, sorry, 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 Chad. He's going to try and break your foot off now. <laughs> he was going to try and break my foot off anyway. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> um, so for me, it's that environment. Like we can come in, we can train hard, we can push each other to be better. But everybody's still friends. Everybody knows that if you need something, they're there. Um, it's not, it's a very family oriented environment. We have a lot of kids there. Um, I 
I'm not physically a very big guy or a very athletic guy, and none of this has come super easy for me. Um, so I don't know that I would have done well in one of the real meat grinder gyms where like you go in and it is roll to the death every single roll. I don't think my body can handle that. I don't have any interest in training that. Um, but for me, the ability to kind of grow and shape and build that family environment at the gym is what that's why I'm still there. Um, I, I do think that I could have potentially maybe gone to another gym and expanded my horizons maybe or gotten to train, you know, if I had moved to Vegas and trained with Drysdale or whatever, you know, those are, it's a room full of killers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I I think that maybe if I could have made jujitsu my full-time job 10 years in, I would have been at a different spot, but it wouldn't have been the same journey and it wouldn't have been what I wanted. You know, you mentioned, you know, when you talked before about finding yourself in a position and reverse engineering that position, and then later you talk about, you know, not being the most physically imposing person or the person and, and for someone for whom this has not come easily. I think often those are the people that make the best teachers, the people that can't just beast somebody off you or scramble and get up and have to reverse engineer positions to really figure out why a, something works or does not work. Is that your experience? And has that been helpful to you as a teacher? Absolutely. So... I was a blue belt. Guy and Rob were letting me help with kids' classes. It was great. Um, I want to say maybe purple belt. I started teaching kids by myself. Um, Purple or brown belt. I started helping with the adult classes um, all through brown brown belt. Right at the end, I kind of stopped. I got a different job, and it was hard for me to make it in time to do kids' classes, so I picked up all the adult beginners program. And teaching has been very influential to understanding. When somebody asks me a question about why am I doing this or why am I doing it this way, I gotta have an answer about, you know, if I'm doing a guillotine escape, why am why am I grabbing up over the back and grabbing the patch, but then dropping my elbow to make it so I'm I've got a little turn in it. Um, there's a lot of that stuff that if you're just going through the motions and maybe you're a little bit athletic and you can get away with it. The grips don't have to be so precise. The movement doesn't have to be so precise. Yeah. No, that, that, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. And, like, I, I think that because in real real world situations, whether that be a real world self-defense situation or a, or a tournament grappling situation, nothing's ever 100%, right? Like, it's super rare that you get a move and you're like, I 100% did everything right and he didn't defend even 1%. Super rare. And so if you're built like Chad Tyler... There's a lot of a lot more forgiveness, not to you know name check Chad, but like big strong guy, yeah. like Chad. Chad can guillotine a lot. You know, there, there's a little more wiggle room on a move like a guillotine than there's with someone like me who's a 145 pound vegan. <laughs> and and so and so so I just think that the like personally, the more of those fine details like the kinds that you just illustrated that you're able to implement, like the greater your percentile chance of finishing a move comes up. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. So one of the things that you and, and Chad are known for are your footlocks. And we got some questions from folks I posted to the Facebook about some of the Facebook. I call it the Facebook because I'm old. That, that uh, 
I, I posted, you know, hey, what would you like us to ask Sean about? And this so this is going to be the Dave Porter question. Uh, this is absolutely going to be the Dave Porter question, and, and and thank you for that. So, like, how did you get into? Well, when did breaking feet? You're known for your footlocks. When did breaking feet start to become a thing for you? What what was the first great footlock you learned, and what and what have you learned along the way? So. Man, I don't know if I can even say this because his head is going to be so big it won't fit through a doorway. Um, Andrew Smith teaches one of the best seminars that I've ever been to. Um, I've done a number of seminars with him that have really changed kind of my game. His Kimura seminar is awesome, and his leg lock seminar is awesome. I did his leg lock seminar maybe like 2011, something like that. And I saw it, and I was like, light bulb moment. This is awesome. Um, I later went and did one with Seth Smith as well. Um, it's a black belt who also runs a gym in Richmond now as well. Um, their leg lock similar, seminars were very similar, but had kind of a unique spin. But seeing those guys that I admired who really had a very strong leg lock game was something that I wanted to emulate. And I think maybe in addition to that, it kind of it, it kind of those prison rules look. <laughs> guys don't like that. Guys don't like to be wrist locked. They don't like to be leg locked. And I don't go into a gym where I'm visiting and like immediately start diving on people's legs. Um, but I also don't want to show up to a gym where I'm visiting and have somebody dive on my feet and not have any idea how to defend it. I didn't want to get to, you know, there there are people who get to brown belt black belt where that's legal like it's totally legal in competition to try and toehold somebody at brown belt black belt i didn't want to be that guy who got there and then had never seen that and was like oh man i, I don't know what to do with half of my body i gotta figure this out now really quickly or i can't compete and be competitive you know it's interesting like you mentioned the prison rules thing and that's like that's a you know a common jujitsu joke and one, one day i would like to do a full show about jujitsu etiquette in like your home gym and visiting your gyms because a lot of people do consider wrist locks and foot locks cheap or dirty and as i'm fond of saying like because a lot of people don't like it when i bear bolo like i'm, I'm all and they're like oh that move is bs and i'm like well it's not bs if someone can do it to you you know that's sort of the point and like if if you can get foot locked you know, if someone can footlock you and it's legal, you know, that's that's legit, right? Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I think that that it, as a quickie etiquette thing for me visiting another gym, regardless whether we're rolling in the gi or no gi, regardless of what belt level the other guy is, especially if he's an upper belt where like I expect that potentially he's going to attack my feet or maybe I'm going to try and attack his like a two second. Hey, man, are we doing footlocks? I find that that alleviates a lot of that confusion. Of, it, I think asking and erring on the side of caution is better, especially as a visitor. Um, and generally, if someone is visiting my gym, I just avoid it until they try to grab mine and then, then game on. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever had somebody visit your gym and dive on your feet not knowing that that's a huge part of your game? Um, I don't think so. We, we've had, and I'm not proud of this, but we've had some some kind of young meathead guys that came in that were just like, that's not a thing. I'm not going to tap to it. And I was like, all right, cool. If that's how you feel about it, that's how you can feel about it. But I blew a kid's ankle out because he just decided, like, I'm not going to tap to it. And I did it super slow, and he let me destroy his foot. 
Yeah, man, I, I've I've heard that. St- I've heard you tell me that story before, and and you know, I think many upper belts have a story that's similar, and I I just don't identify with that mentality, that meathead mentality at all, especially if you know, because my instructor Seth Champ, when he applies a submission, particularly to a new guy, it's like you described, it's like one centimeter at a time, like hey buddy. Hey, buddy, this move works. No, I, I swear, it really works. And I know it hurts. Yeah, right. I'm well aware of how it feels. I know it hurts. And I mean, I think a lot of guys, particularly that are in that sort of tough guy mentality, assume that pain, like, and, and you know, to a certain extent, you have to have a pain tolerance, but pain is also a signal. And, and you know, and that, yep. si- that signal exists for a reason. And like, and, and so, you know, so if you're listening at home, tap, it's fine. If you tap, you start again in two seconds. It's fine. If That's you, way better than taking six weeks off because you got to have your ankle rebuilt. Yeah. Or six months or however long it takes. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, bad, bad news. Bad news. So uh, I'm glad also that you mentioned both Andrew Smith and Seth Smith because I haven't learned a ton from both of those guys. And quick footlock story. I want to keep talking about footlocks for a minute. Um so uh, me, myself, and some of the other guys I train with, dudes that I know, you know, Harold Hubbard, Jojo Poteet, sure. uh, we'd gone up to Andrew's gym um, where he was hosting Seth for a seminar. I was at that seminar. Oh, you were, oh okay, awesome. That was well, the Seth seminar I the, was talking about. Fair enough. Well, then you know the move that I that this story is about. So, like, uh, you know, a, a couple, maybe like a year, maybe even two years later, we have this cool new upper belt, you know, high blue belt guy named Dave. Hey, Dave, come to train at our gym. He's like, hey, you know, he's, he's going to be here in, in physical therapy school. You know, guy becomes a good friend of mine. He's awesome dude. And neither of us had put together that he had been at that seminar too until Harold tried to do the dull saw on yeah. Dave, which is one of Seth's moves that he calls the dull, the dull saw. Because it feels like it's sawing your foot off it, with a dull saw. <laughs> it, it hurts a lot. Yeah, it, indeed, indeed. So do you? So you're known for your toe holds. Sure. Uh, would you say that's your favorite footlock, or like, uh, or is there a different one that, that's your favorite? Um, I, I think when I'm rolling with upper belts, yeah, I, I dig that. I like jumping on that. It. I think that one leaves my feet out less than some of the others, uh, depending on the position they get set up from. But I'll tell you, the one that I think is probably like the one that just kind of blows new people's minds is the straight ankle lock where they go to sit over. And like they're defending the straight ankle lock correctly. Mm-hmm. They've cleared my foot off their hip. They're sitting over, and you follow them belly down. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's still a straight ankle lock. It's totally legal for everybody. Um, that one's a jam, <laughs> and that's super tight. I don't, I'm not sure how you're supposed to escape that one once it's all locked in. Yeah, no, and that one, and uh, you know, I, I'm an upper belt, and you've caught me with that one, <laughs> and and it, in fact, it's it's a super slick technical technical ankle lock that also hurts a lot. Mm-hmm. So. So yeah, one time me and Kim Rice, who uh, won't come on the show, uh, she only would come on the show one time, and you're, you're welcome all the time, Kim. By gosh, yeah. One time me and Kim uh, came out to your gym to learn footlocks from you. Oh yeah, I and, remember uh, that. And do you remember how Kim paid you? Yep, with uh, Nutella brownies. Nutella brownies. Those things are delicious. They're like crack to me. I yeah. can't have them anymore because vegan. But, but, uh, but yeah. So, uh, do, 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 so was that? Would you say that's your favorite payment for a private lesson ever? It's definitely in the top few. I am secretly, and maybe not so secretly, a fat kid at heart. Uh, I love milkshakes and ice cream and candy and cookies and all that stuff. I'm a fat kid. Well, yeah, we can use this, and we'll get to talking about ju- get back to talking about jujitsu in a minute. But some of the uh, the the lifestyle things I wanted to talk to you about. One of your other passions, in addition to grappling, is cooking. Sure. So, so how did you first get into food? Um, you know, I, I do IT stuff for a living, um, and there's a lot of days where at the end of the day you don't have like a physical product to put your hands on and be like cool this is what i did today Uh, a lot of it's kind of esoteric a lot of it's break fix a lot of it 
from my standpoint, maybe not the most personal fulfilling. I don't know how to say that exactly, but whatever. Maybe not the most fulfilling portion of my life. Cooking, I love to eat. So I had cooked a little bit for my family growing up, and I realized if I was willing to put a little bit of time in, I could make really good stuff and not have to go to a restaurant and spend a bunch of money. I like, it was another way to kind of show people that I cared about them. Um, so at holiday stuff, you know, like I cook for my family. My parents don't cook. I take care of it. It's something I like doing. It's my way of kind of showing them that I care and that I love them and that, you know, here, I made Christmas dinner. I made Thanksgiving, you know. Um, I like to host. I like to have people over, all that kind of stuff. So, What are your top three favorite go-to meals? Um, beef burgundy. Uh, I cooked most of my way through the Julia Child cookbook. Um, I don't know if I ever finished that or not. I kind of got to the point where I was, it was a chore. But um, I really like that. I like hitting stuff up on the grill. Um, do a lot of steaks, that kind of stuff. And um, cook a lot of Asian, like stir fry, that kind of stuff. Do you ever like so? And to transition a little bit back to this will be our segue back to jujitsu. So you travel a lot with U.S. Grappling, sure. And you travel a lot with both John Bagels, Telford, who we talked about, and Beverly, sure. And uh, do do you ever like? So Beverly loves to bake mm-hmm. and bakes incredibly delicious things. And is it is it is it ever like how do you keep how do you not get fat? Is guess what I guess what I'm asking. Um, well, first I am kind of fat, <laughs> so I don't know that that's a great question. But <sighs> he's not fat. I'm somewhat fat. I'm I'm probably not going to make 162 this weekend. So we'll see. That's because you don't care about making weight. Uh, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. So. I, I try to make somewhat good decisions, um, especially like at lunch. For most days, lunch, I try and have some sort of a salad or something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I hit a rower at home and I, I jump rope and I've been doing jujitsu for a long time. I train pretty regularly and uh, I have recently committed at the gym to start doing Muay Thai. Oh, wow. Yeah, so uh, maybe a week, maybe a couple of weeks, but I'm going to start doing that and see how that goes. Um, I don't particularly like getting punched in the face, so... You're too pretty to get punched in the face, Sean. <sighs> man, it's the money maker. It's tough. Um, What's your favorite baked thing that Beverly makes? Oh, man. Uh, she makes, like, these homemade Samoas oh. that are pretty pretty incredible. And she also makes these... Uh, oh, man, what can I call them on the radio? These brownie cookie bar things. Um, she'll know what they're supposed to be called but you're not allowed to say that on the radio so we'll just call them brownie cookie bars <laughs> happy birthday by the way beverly yeah happy birthday bev yeah, yeah so um and so you know so you travel with 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 the u.s grappling crew a lot and you've been doing jujitsu for about 10 years how long ha- would you say you've been involved with u.s grappling and how did that start um so i was going through a bunch of shirts that i had the other day and i have some tournament shirts from 2006 so early on um my instructor's guy and Rob Pendergrass, they they lost their father to leukemia in, like, I think, like, 2004, 2003, 2004. It was before I had met them. Um, so every year up until last year, they were running a tournament for leukemia research. Um, they would run a tournament. They would take the money, donate it. Um, and I want to say the last year or second to last year they had done it, we broke the $50,000 mark. They had they donated a bunch of money over the years. Um so 
I was at the gym. I was available to help. I was helping those guys with those tournaments, helping them load in, load out, set stuff up, do what I could do to help. Um, I was really enjoying it. Chrissy and Brian were helping with that. Uh, Chrissy and Brian and Andrew, those are the owners of U.S. Grappling. Uh, I just got hooked up with them. I was working tables. I enjoyed it. I got to be a purple belt. I started refing for them. I started traveling with them. Um, and I have refed about eight bazillion matches, all said and done, for those guys. Um, and over time, it transitioned into helping do setup, helping drive the truck, helping do brackets. So we're going to get you and John Bagels Telford in the studio at the same time one time, so we can tell so we can tell some road stories. One in particular that we're not going to tell this time because I want to have John in for it. But I want I do want to ask you of all the roles you've filled at U.S. Grappling, is there one or two that you enjoy doing the most? Yes, there's definitely. Uh, there's benefits to all of it. I really like driving the truck. Um, John's one of my best friends in the world. It's a pretty menial job. We go, we put stuff in a truck, we drive the truck where it needs to go, we unload the stuff, and we make a turn that happen. But there's a lot of um, a lot of good stories and a lot of laughs on the road between here and there. The bracketing is cool. Uh, it's cool to kind of be a part of it and see how it runs. Um, refereeing was a lot of fun. I refed a whole lot of matches. Um, but it's, it can be, refing is not an easy job. Uh, Jeff, you've ref, ref for us before. Yeah, I've refed a fair bit. Um, so refereeing is not an easy job. Um, as everybody who does jujitsu knows, there's a whole lot of positions and there's a whole lot of in- intricacies to each of those positions. And we'll full circle back to this Dave Porter leg lock question. So, there's a move called a Texas Cloverleaf. I understand what a Texas Cloverleaf is. I know how to do a Texas Cloverleaf. A Texas Cloverleaf looks an awful lot like a heel hook with a leg on top of it. And it's a calf crusher because of the way that you're crushing the heel hooked leg into the top leg. And I warned Dave Porter as he was trying to Texas Cloverleaf. Herman, I can't remember Herman's last name. Salas, I think. Um I didn't necessarily tell him to stop. I said, watch the heel hook, and he moved on. Um, he gives me a hard time about it. But, I mean, at that point, I had refed a ton of matches, and, like, I mess stuff up. It happens. Everybody misses stuff. Um, so refing is probably one of the more satisfying but also tougher jobs. Um, one of the other things that I do a lot for them is ref kids. Um, refing the kids is great. We have a... Uh, and I don't know, maybe some organizations do this as well, but we'll stop a kid's match. If a kid is in an arm bar and their arm is extended and like, I've been doing this long enough to know, I, I just know if the kid isn't defending it and he's just going to try and tough it out so that his dad doesn't yell at him, like, we'll stop that match. I don't want that kid to get hurt. I want him to go home happy. And like, that's very satisfying kind of at the end of the day to get to shake those parents hands and then be like okay cool thank you guys you did a good job you took care of our kids you made sure that they were safe and at the end of the day we're happy that's very satisfying to me i'm glad you brought that up because refing is a crucially important job and refing kids i think is is the most important because you know not only are they the future of jiu-jitsu but it's like nobody you know there's a grown man rule where you can you know grown folk 
should have the sense to tap. They don't always, as we talked about in, sure. in some of the earlier things. But like kids, it's very important that you know. And, and Jason Wingate is also a really conscientious kids ref as well. Sure. And like C.J. Murdoch, like I, 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 that is something that like you know because you mentioned I've refed a, a bit as well. Like I actually enjoy refing adult matches. Refing kids matches is super stressful mm-hmm. because the consequences and it's like somebody's kid and and uh, and like I'll be honest with you, like I. Like refing, although I do enjoy it and I find it rewarding in the same way that, that you describe, like it's more stressful to me than competing. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because like you don't want to mess up anybody's match, right? Sure. You know? And and like you said, all human beings make mistakes, and people I don't think that haven't re- people people who haven't refed, I don't necessarily think they understand the sort of mental fatigue that goes on when you're out there for like three four hours. Yep. Just like and and you're like, oh man, who was on top? You know, who man? Really? There are some guys that ref for us that they are just workhorses. They come on the mat at 11 a.m., and they will ref until the end of the day. And I just don't have that. Uh, same deal with me. You know, I'm three, four hours in. I need to take a break. I need to kind of sit down get something to eat. Um, but, you know, like DeAndre Corbet. Dee's one of our kids' refs. Um, congrats on your brown belt, D. Yeah. Well um, deserved. Yeah, no doubt. So, like D, workhorse. He'll go out there, and he will ref until his legs fall off doesn't care dave porter same deal he'll go out there and ref until his legs fall off doesn't care both kids refs for us both do a great job mm-hmm. yeah man i i um so yeah props to all those guys props to everybody that, that works hard in refs and uh to throw in another plug speaking of refs standing around for hours at a time the longest u.s grappling submission only match i i i believe you can correct me if i'm wrong is andrew smith's match against Nakapon that was over three hours so there actually is a longer match than that i think it was a beginner's nogi match and i don't think andrew went quite three hours oh is that right his was super long and to this day Nakapon is a magical beast <laughs> <laughs> that's just true yeah that dude is amazing um and as a nod to andrew uh, I think CJ Murdoch explained it this way was that match was like watching Andrew break the horn off of a unicorn and all of his magic draining out. <laughs> um, that match was crazy. Yeah. Um, Nakapon was so dehydrated. And I think at the end of it, in order to get them apart, um, they had to massage Nakapon's forearms so that he could let go of Andrew's sleeves or lapels or whatever it was that he had. Um, and Andrew ended up winning that match. But I think the longest match that they had was a, a beginner no-gi match that went just over three hours. That, that's really interesting because, like, the – I mean, both parts of that are interesting. First of all, that the Andrew Nakapon match is a legendary match. And although Andrew may have won it, nobody lost it. Sure. <laughs> right? Because, wow, those guys. Um, but, like, it, it's sort of funny, too, because those dudes are, you know, elite guys. Like, top-level, brilliant jiu-jitsu practitioners. And then, on, on the other hand, the other really long match is this beginner no-gi match, which I didn't see and I didn't know about until just now. But I sort of presume that it, that it went so long because neither of them knew any submissions. <laughs> that was a large portion of it. They would be, I, I think, one of the guys, and I hate that I can't remember their names, um, and I'm sure... When this gets posted, somebody will correct me and let me know who it was. That's why we have social media. Yeah, absolutely. But I remember at certain points of that, like one guy had the other guy's back and just wasn't sinking an RNC because he didn't know how to finish it. You know, like one of one of our longest, like so, it, it's sort of interesting for me to watch the way people's jujitsu develops. And and I want to talk to you about how your personal style developed. But one of the reasons I think it's really important that everybody get the fundamentals 
is because, you know, you have this, nothing is a fully linear progression, but you want people to get the basics and then sort of build on that. And so one of the dudes that, that I got to train with learned Daily Heva Guard and Barambolo as like one of the first things he learned, which which is crazy, right? Sure. And, and you know, this was a dude that was a big, tall, athletic guy, and so with the long legs, Daily Heva Guard, very, you know, and so he was able to, to be really tough. And, like, and, you know, if you got in this cat's guard, you would have a hard time even if you were a couple belt levels above him. And so he did a submission-only tournament, you know, against other white belts and beginner no-gis, uh, no-gi guys. And it was funny because we were like, oh, this dude's really going to do really well. And he did, or he would have if there were sweep points, because he swept this cat, barambolo'd, took his back, like, did this, like, many, many times over the hour that the match continued. <laughs> but was like, all right, got the guys back. What now? <laughs> so I'm glad that you asked that question. So for me... Um, all through white belt and even part of blue belt, I wasn't, I wasn't training at the same frequency that I was now. I was a once a week, twice a week guy. It took me like two and a half years to get a blue belt. I just wasn't training that much. Um, so I was doing pretty well at blue belt. I kind of stepped up, started training more. I got a purple belt and I started doing more nogi. So like Positionally, I was doing really well against guys in the gym, but I would get to the top and like just be smothering them. But I had done loop chokes and cross collar chokes for the entirety of white belt and blue belt. So I was on top and I was like, all right, neat. I'm here. What do I do now? <laughs> so kind of at that point, I started doing more focus training. And the more experienced I got, the larger my pool of guys to practice on got. But I went and did that Kimura seminar with Andrew. And all I did for eight weeks or 12 weeks or whatever period of time I sat down was I just jumped on a Kimura every opportunity I could from every position. And that's still how I focus my training now. Um, at the beginning of the year, I write down a handful of goals. Take the back. Sweep using a Barambola or whatever it is that I want to work on. And for six or eight weeks, that's all I do. And by the end of the eight weeks, everybody in the gym knows that's what I'm, gonna, what I'm trying to do. Wrist lock, straight ankle lock, whatever. Good luck. I'm still going to do it. And it it's good for me from the standpoint that I get to practice what I want to practice. They get to kind of work on defending it and giving some new options for defending it. And it presents new challenges for me to sort out. That makes perfect sense because, like, it's it's a lot easier you know, because you're almost ratcheting up your own difficulty settings. Mm -hmm. Where if, if they don't know it's triangle week, it's a lot easier to triangle people. Sure, I think I think uh, Jake Whitfield talked about this in his interview. Was that was he would do it a day at a time or a week at a time or a month at a time? Where same thing by the end of the month, like everybody knew I'm going to triangle you. Yeah. Good luck stopping it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm still waiting for Barambola week out in Goldsboro. So. <laughs> So it's, it has to happen sooner or later. I mean, sure. eventually. Yeah, yeah right. Let's go with that. Uh, so, so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you're a guy who has seen a ton of stuff, uh, you know, in, in the local jujitsu community. Who do you think are some of the really underrated jujitsu practitioners in North Carolina and beyond, like th that you've seen either you've trained with or, or, or through your role at U.S. Grappling? Man, um, that's a tough question. So a lot of... I visited a lot of gyms. Um, I want to say it was like 2012, 2013. I was a purple belt. And I made it a priority to hit a bunch of gyms that year. And I think I made it to like 40. North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia. Um, 
As far as underrated guys, man, uh, I'll tell you a guy that I don't think is on social media at all. He's a local guy in Raleigh, and he's a killer. Jason Jellin. Go train with that guy. He will take your lunch money over and over and over, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, Jason's a monster. Um, he's a uh, uh, Half Gracie, or mm-hmm. I guess he might be under Kurt. I don't know how the lineage yeah. on that works, but I don't either. But I but I do know how the killing works, and the yeah. killing works efficiently and effectively. It works real well for him. Um, there's a bunch of dudes in Charlotte um, that are real tough. John Piper. I don't know if he competes very much locally or whatever, but um, on and off, a, we've talked about getting him on Toro Cup or getting him on one of the cage side events, and I would agree. He's a he's, he's got a dude. Uh, Patrick, a purple belt guy that trains under him, Patrick. Yeah, I don't remember his last name Hastings, either. Hastings, maybe. I don't. I know the guy you talked. That about, guy's though. a killer too, mm-hmm. monster. Um, but just there's a bunch of good guys at every gym that I visit. Where like maybe you don't expect that guy to be such a killer, but it's grown. It's grown a lot, and there are a lot of guys who don't necessarily want to go out and compete. But man, they're tough. Yeah, you know, and one of the great things about jiu-jitsu is it really does keep you humble. And, like, if you start thinking, you know, you win some medals and you're like, hey, I'm really good at this, then I think it's good for folks to go visit gyms, meet dudes that are like, wow, I never even heard of this guy. You know, his style is something I've never seen before. And, wow, how did I just get choked eight times in 30 seconds? Um, which is, you know, and, and J- you know, to, to return to Jason Jellin, I agree with you that, like, both of the guys you named, I think, are, are, are excellent examples of, of, underrated, of underrated dudes that are just absolute monsters. And, you know, Jason makes really good guys look silly, you know, and and and, uh, and what I like about his game, too, is that you mentioned that he comes from that, the Half Gracie, Kurt Osiander lineage, which is really old school, really like tough guy, smashy jujitsu, which he has. But he also has all of the so-called modern jujitsu, too, is like really good with all the modern guards, really good passing all the modern guards and, you know, just ha- is, is super well-rounded in addition to just being being a, a, a general beast. The first time I rolled with him. He arm dragged to my back and bow and arrow choked me 10 times in five minutes. There was no proper place to put my hand. It didn't matter. He would just maul me over and over and over. And like, you know, and not that, you know, there is, you know, when I would roll with Jason and this is maybe just him doing it, doing it with me, but, but I've seen him do it with some other, other cats too. He'll play the game you want to play and beat you at it. Mm-hmm. Like you know, my uh, like what I tend to do, and most people know this. If they trained with me, I like to play guard. I like to play De La Hiva guard. I like to barambolo. And it's like here's a dude, you know. And Jason just did all that stuff, just eight levels better than me. And it's like, and I got a hunch if I tried to do something else, he would just do that better, <laughs> right? Fully. So, so yeah. And uh, I haven't gotten to, to like I've I've trained at John Piper's gym in Charlotte. A great bunch of guys out there, and John is an awesome, awesome instructor. In addition to being being a beast, went out there for the Murillo Santana seminar that I had there, and he's a dude that a really humble guy, but like super well rounded jujitsu as well. Yeah, his uh, his crucifix game is tough. Mm-hmm. So. L- I, I want you to be able to share some of the like. Do you have any? It, so you've traveled a lot with sure. U, with U.S. grappling. Are there any particular memory memorable events from you either from U.S. grappling tournaments or from road trips to tournaments that you were like that is a profound jujitsu moment that I want to remember? So this wasn't through U.S. grappling, but uh, I was a purple belt. I don't know a couple of years ago. Myself, three other guys from the gym. Um, we did a little road trip. We went up to Gustavo Machado. That's my instructor's instructor's gym. So, yeah, two levels up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, in Virginia Beach, we went to Andrew Smith's gym in Richmond. 
we went to uh, at the time it was Fairfax Jiu-Jitsu where uh, Dave Jacobs was before they kind of had whatever happened with them and then we went to Beta where Nakapon was and we did it all in like three days we trained at a bunch of places um, we traveled all over rolling with Dave Jacobs for the first time rolling with Nakapon for the first time a day apart Dave there was no proper place to touch him I got mauled um, and it was funny. I had watched one of the other guys who's kind of the same level as me train with Dave and Dave had been super nice to him. And, and I didn't really know Dave that well. Um, we were somewhat friendly, but I had never trained with him and he stopped and watched Dave roll with me and I just got mauled. And like one of my favorite pictures from jujitsu is this big cheesy grin. We're both like sitting next to each other on the mat, big thumbs up, big cheesy grin. That was right after Dave Jacobs had just beaten me to death for 10 straight minutes. <laughs> And I got done, and jo- Josh asked me, he was like, dude, what did you do to him? Why why did he do that? And I was like, I don't know. He was so nice to you. But that was like a really, he was super cool about it. He told me, he showed me exactly what I was doing wrong after the fact, and I, it was awesome. Nakapon was the same deal. He was an anaconda. He would like get on top in half guard and like hold my head down with his, or like hold my arm down with his chin. Any space that was gone was gone forever it was his you were never getting it back um that trip was really eye-opening for me kind of you know as a guy that was somewhat of a gym lion in my gym how broad that spectrum was like yeah cool guy and robber black belts new black belts but you know like i talked to knock upon uh at the past tournament that we did in richmond and he was like, oh, man, I can't wait to see you in the black belt division. And I was like, Nakapon, how, how long have you been a black belt? And he's like, oh, I don't know, like 13 years. <laughs> I've been a black belt longer than I've longer than I knew jiu-jitsu was a thing, man. Like, no, I don't. I'm excited to compete against him, but I kind of understand how that's going to go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's uh, you're not alone. In no, that regard, absolutely not. In that regard. Now, that that is that's an awesome story, because, like, I, I think. You know, even folks who haven't had the opportunity to, and if you do have the opportunity to take an amazing jujitsu training road trip like that, sure, totally awesome. do it, totally do it. But like, if you know, I think most people, at least intellectually, understand all the different levels there are to jujitsu, but experiencing experiencing it is a different thing, right? Like, like when I roll with Seth, my instructor, who's a black belt, there's no right place, you know, there's no right place sure. to put my hands, and and it baffles me that there are there are dudes that, in the world that can that can beat Seth. And that there are dudes in the world that can beat those dudes. Sure. And it's just, it's just, you know, like you may be the toughest dude in the room, Mm -hmm. but maybe you're not the toughest guy in the city. Maybe you're not the toughest guy in the state. Maybe you're not the toughest guy on the East Coast. And just like you said, there's always one fish bigger than you, except maybe your last name's Meow or Cornelius or, you know, (laughs) those dudes. And even them, like, within the constraints of that time limit and that point system, like, those are the baddest dudes, but maybe. In a sub-only match, maybe Keenan Cornelius wouldn't be the king of the mountain. I don't know. Maybe he would. Maybe he wouldn't. But yeah, but like r- rule set matters and matchups matter, right? Like there are definitely dudes that that I do very well against who get mashed by dudes who mash me, or like or yeah, that jujitsu math is tough. And I, I think I won't get out way out on this tangent, but there's a lot of guys that now are upset at the butt scooty double guard pull, whatever. Jiu-Jitsu attracts smart dudes, like problem solver. This is people chess, uh, and it helps to be an athletic chess player in this circumstance. But 
guys that are smart that want to win, they're going to use the rules to win. They're going to uh, – Trey Martin's got a great quote. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. <laughs> um, those guys are trying to win within the time constraints, within the point constraints. And I, I, I think it's smart on their part, and I understand that it's maybe not great for jujitsu as an art, but as far as a sport, those guys are figuring it out. Yeah, I, I mean, you raise a really valid point, and I will always say I'm never going to hate on a competitor who does what it takes to win within the rules. If you don't like the aesthetics of what is created, then that's a rule set issue, right? Where you yep. know, fix the rules. And uh, we'll get in one last plug before you're scrapping. Then I got a couple more of the questions for you before we get on out of here, which is like, and that's sort of the beauty of a sub, of a true submission only format, right? Because it takes the the judgment and guesswork and the advantages and the points. You know, no one is going to win by almost sweeping somebody and coming, you know, and, and getting an advantage and stalling. No Agreed. One. Yeah. You're going to go <laughs> for as long as it takes. You can quit because you're tired or you can quit because somebody's choked you or wrist locked you or whatever, but somebody's going to have to win. And it's funny, you know, I expect guys at 45 minutes to quit, but I think both of them at that point are like, well, I've already been 45 minutes. What's another 15 minutes or an hour? Yeah, right. I mean, plus, I, I imagine it just becomes like a, you know, I got this far. Let's see how far we can take this. Let's yep. see how far we can ride this Stubborn. Train. Just make it happen. So in the couple minutes we have left, is there anything that I haven't asked about that you really want, that you wish I would have asked about? Um, Justin, oh, shout out to you. Let's let's talk about cars and bikes. Uh, I'm an avid motorcycle rider. I rode my bike over, rode one of my bikes over here today. Um, coolest bike that I've ever owned. Uh, I just picked up a Husqvarna 701 Supermoto. Uh, it's a hooligan machine, wheelie machine. It's awesome. Um, and then coolest car, uh, I think right now I've got a, or I know right now I've got a 13 STI wagon. Uh, I love wagons. I don't know why. Everybody else hates them. Um, kind of been a running joke with them. all my friends is I spend a whole bunch of money on cars, but they're not cars that women like. They're cars that middle school boys have posters of. So, um, bunch of cars that are cool to me and not cool to anybody else. Those are the best kind of cars, man. If it's cool to you, then it's cool. And yeah, I think that's it. also a very important distinction. The middle school boy poster distinction is, 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 is the struggle is real. Yeah. Also want to thanks for holding me accountable to that. Really wanted to ask that question, so I'm glad you didn't let me forget it. So, uh, you know, in here, this is the time when, uh, you know, in the, in the couple of minutes we have left that uh, you have an opportunity to give shouts out to folks that have helped you on your journey. You've mentioned a lot so far, you know, obviously Guy and Rob, but I'm wondering if there's other folks that you want to, that you want to thank or generally give recognition to. Oh man. So, um, just for me, it's the whole community. There's so many to list that I, I, I'm not going to do it justice. Um, the ownership of us grappling, Chrissy and Brian and Andrew, those guys have been guys and gals have been great to me. Um, John Telford, I spend more hours in a truck with that dude than any two people should ever be together. Um, you know, past that, all my training partners, all of the guys that have welcomed me into their gyms, welcomed me into, you know, getting to train with a bunch of different body types and skill sets and all that stuff. Uh, and thanks to you for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure, man. I've always wanted to have you on the show. I'm glad we did. And we uh, and we and can we get you back in the studio with John sometime to tell U.S. Grappling Road stories? Yeah, sure. I know the one that he wanted me to ask or wanted me to talk about was the truck story. So we'll save that for when he's here so I can mock him relentlessly while we do it. I think that is something. we got to give the people what they want, and that is what the people want. Yeah. So I'm going to thank you. Pendergrass Academy Black Belt, Sean Zorio, uh, is involved with U.S. Grappling, is involved with all aspects of the North Carolina and beyond jiu-jitsu scene. Thanks so much for taking the time to come into studio. Hey, one second, Jeff. Um, If you guys are in Wake Forest, if you guys are in Raleigh, 
please stop by Pendergrass Academy. We're on social media. You can find us online. Um, check it out. You're welcome. Come train with us. Pendergrass is one of the most welcoming places to train. Uh, I've trained there a bunch, a bunch of really cool, really tough, really technical people, and I've always felt super welcome there. So thanks to Guy and Rob for creating that environment, and I would echo Sean's sentiments. So thanks to Sean. Thanks to everybody at Pendergrass. I'm Jeff Shaw, and we will see you next week.